This means more than most of us can easily put our fingers on. We've come into this series to look at the house of atonement, the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so each and every week what we're doing is we're pulling away a window and we're looking at these atonement theories like windows and asking if we can glimpse a little bit more of what Jesus did for us on and through the cross. But one of the dangers in doing this, one of the risks in doing this kinds of series is that there's always more. In fact, there's so much more that I can say here. One of the risks is that what I'm throwing and sticking on the wall in this series won't be enough. That it will be hard to comprehend, hard to understand. There'll be words that won't make sense and we won't be able to narrow it down and we're wondering which actual theory or window should we be looking through or should we not be looking through? What is it that we're trying to do here? It would be much easier just not to do this and to keep our understanding of the cross and what Jesus accomplished on it to a few easy bullet points. But that would be somewhat like if you were Chip and someone came to you and said, I'd like to join the choir, Chip, because I really love to sing in the shower. <laughs> and I, 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 I get a great deal of joy from singing in my car on the way to work. So I really want to sing in the choir. Can I sing in the choir? Chip would say, yeah, any one of you can come and sing in the choir. And he would say, well, but just, just one thing. Chip, what, what I would prefer is that I, I'm not really, I don't really care about learning about sharps and flats and breathing and harmonies and anything like that. I just want to sing the melody like I do in the shower. And Chip might say, well, you're pretty good in the shower. <laughs> Maybe you had to stick to what you know. Well, he wouldn't say that. But he'd think it. Because there's more to the beautiful music that Chip wants you to be able to appreciate, wants to prompt you in worship with, than just singing the melody. There's texture and there's tone and there's breathing and there's sharps and there's flats and there's pauses. There's all of this to the music that the choir wants to make for us in worship. And in the same way, there is much more to the cross than most of us have laid our eyes and ears and hearts on. So the idea behind this series in the House of Atonement isn't that we're just sort of, hey, which one of these am I supposed to believe? No, it's, it's more like when I look through this window, recapitulation and theosis a few weeks ago, there are some cracks and smudges and there's some dirt on the window but may, and there's some things that I'm not seeing things exactly right but I see a certain angle of what's going on on the cross. I can't see the whole thing but if I were to go to this other window and look in over here I might be able to see a little bit more and I might be able to notice what the cracks and smudges are over there. And then if I look in this other one, I might be able to see another dimension and another angle. And somehow in that, I might be able to get kind of a bigger glimpse of the majesty and the glory of what God has done for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, these sermons are appetizers. They're teasers. I can't hit everything. It's impossible every single week. I can't do that. It's impossible. 
So there is sort of a sense of if you hear something or connect with something or see something or feel stirred by something that seems a little bit different and kind of wants, makes you, pulls you in a little bit, that then maybe that brings you to the buffet of your own discipleship. That there's some reading you might do. That there's a Googling of a term that you might try. That there's a conversation or a Bible study you might go to. You might even say, Jason, we're going to arrange these people together and we're going to be there every Wednesday at lunch or every Wednesday at dinner and we're going to have a conversation about this because the cross is the cornerstone of our faith and the cornerstone of existence, we might say, and we want to know more and more and more about that. As people have throughout the centuries as they've attempted to follow Jesus Christ as individuals and in community. There is a, perhaps, perhaps it is a, uh, you know, fictionalized story, or perhaps it's real, probably real. Old Sunday school story, many of you have probably heard before. About a third grade Sunday school class, we'll say. And the teacher comes into the class and does a little warm-up with the class, and in the warm-up wants to ask a question and see if anybody can answer that question in that third grade class. So the teacher starts and says, all right, boys and girls, I want to see if any of you know, I mean, here's, I'll give you three guesses, here's three clues. I'm thinking of something that climbs trees, has a bushy tail, and stores nuts for the winter. And ooh, the, the hands go up, ooh. Yes, Timmy? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus? Really? Well, it sounded like a squirrel, but we're in Sunday school, so I know it's probably Jesus. Usually is Jesus. And in the same way, the cross has been that, the cross of Jesus has been that throughout the centuries for the church. It has been an answer in search of a question. So people at different times in history, a part of different cultures with different things going on, will be asking a question about existence or life or atonement or grace or what God has done for us. And the answer they know always is the cross, but how is it the cross? And so are there these metaphors that we find in the Bible and church history as we survey all of church history, they kind of end up becoming these little glimpses. And sometimes we're trying to answer our questions with a medieval version of the answer. And we get confused about that because it doesn't make the sense to us that it made to them. So our hope is, is that through looking through all of these lenses, we might begin to catch a fuller glimpse by Easter, at least a teaser of a glimpse, of all Jesus did for us on Good Friday and how that was vindicated and became victorious on Easter Sunday. Now, if you were to read book after book after book on the atonement, so much of what you'll see in trying to understand it will come from the epistles. We, we automatically have this instinct to go to Paul and Hebrews, like we just did a minute ago, and say, what does this mean? What did Paul say this meant? And how are we going to get some handles on that? And there's even sort of almost an implied idea that the Gospels say nothing about it. That the, the Gospels are just a backstory to the real stuff. If we want to know kind of like what led up to the real stuff, the cross, we can read the Gospels, but the Gospels don't sort of say anything about our atonement. They don't sort of say anything about our salvation. We've got to go to the epistles for that. And yet, 
There are some lines that Jesus offers that we might get into later. And there's a moment of explanation that really every early Christian would have easily leaned into and toward. Where Jesus doesn't give a theory or a model, but a meal. And there was something very intentional about that meal in the context of that meal. Now, if, if I were going to go back, based on what I have always been told about the atonement most of my life, and it said, Jesus, I want to give you some advice about what Jewish festival you ought to show up in the midst of to help us understand what you're doing on the cross, I would not have told him to come at Passover. I would have said, let's go with Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur is about forgiveness. And Passover isn't about forgiveness. So if we're going to talk about forgiveness of sins, we ought to do that during Yom Kippur, not Passover. And yet Jesus chose to move into Jerusalem very intentionally during the Feast of Passover, the feast that celebrated and commemorated their core story, one of the most important things in the history of Israel, the Exodus. Now you remember that story? Children of Israel are in slavery for over 400 years, crying out for deliverance. Moses spends his first 40 years as kind of a prince of Egypt. And then he spends another 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, thinking his life's over, trying to figure out what he's going to do there. And then all of a sudden there's this burning bush and he becomes the deliverer. And he goes to Egypt and he meets with Pharaoh. And in, in the midst of trying to bring about God's deliverance, or God bringing about deliverance through Moses, we see these plagues. Now if we had time, we'd go through each and every one of the plagues, because the plagues are really interesting. Each and every single one of those shows Yahweh's victory over some Egyptian god. Or shows Yahweh's triumph over some part of Egyptian life, their economy their food source, their water source, things like this. So that step by step by step, Yahweh is showing that Yahweh is greater than the gods of Egypt and the power of Egypt and the government of Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world at the time. This is what's happening through the plagues. And then there's this culminating moment, you remember, it's the Passover. The final plague, which is the death plague, the power of death comes in, and God tells them, if you will sacrifice this Passover lamb and rub the blood on the doorposts, the death angel will pass over and you will be saved from the plague of death, which will lead to you being delivered from the powers of oppression. Now, there's some echoes here, if we're listening for them. So even then, God goes ahead and, and through Moses tells them, and this is how you're going to celebrate this deliverance in the future once it's happened. If you go back to Exodus 12, you'll see that the celebration of the Passover was actually detailed before the deliverance. And you may remember, this is why we don't have the fluffy bread here today, that Passover is intermingled with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We heard Paul talking about unleavened bread and Passover in 1 Corinthians. And the reason unleavened bread was a part of the Passover feast was because they had to eat on their feet. They had to eat with their boots on, with their sandals on. 
They, they had to be ready for the, the, the death plague to come at any time, for the visitation of the Lord to come at any time. And so there wasn't time for the bread to rise. There wasn't time for the yeast. And so they, they had this flat bread, and the unleavened bread then becomes a part of the festival. So much so that in their instructions for celebrating the Passover, they're told in the week before the celebration of Passover and unleavened bread that they need to go through their house and remove every single piece of leaven. Get the leaven out of the house. And the meaning of the leaven evolved over time. This is all going on when Jesus goes into Jerusalem at that time. They're going there during the Passover, preparing to celebrate the Passover, preparing to celebrate this freedom festival that actually made the powers that be, the Roman government, a little bit on edge. Because what were they celebrating? They were celebrating a time when their God delivered them from an oppressive power through a triumphant victory. And so they knew rebellion was always brewing in the midst of the Passover feast, which was a seven-day feast. And they were kind of waiting for it, and so were Jesus' disciples. The rebellion, the overthrow, right? The new regime. They're waiting for this to happen. And Jesus is supposed to lead them in this. All of these echoes are there. All of these echoes are there. Then you might ask yourself, well, then what about the forgiveness of sins? Well, what happened over time was, there was an intermingling in their understanding, and we even see this in the prophets with Isaiah, between the exodus and the exile. Two definitive moments in their history. We see this in Isaiah, sort of this bringing together of exodus and exile. We see this in the book of Daniel, this, this sense that even after they return to the land after the exile in Babylon, they will still be in a kind of exile from God. And the exile is a result of their sin. And so there was this sense that if the exile is going to come to an end, it's going to happen through the forgiveness of sins. That somehow the triumph over the powers will be intermingled with some great act of God that brings about the forgiveness of sins and brings to an end this sort of cataclysmic exile that they're living in right now. There's this sort of anticipation about that. About what's going on. And this sense that in the midst of it they'll be delivered from the powers, only the powers might be different than they previously expected. All of this is happening and in their minds and memories as Jesus goes to the table on that night during the Passover and begins to do something that they likely assumed and would have been right was a Passover meal, and yet he moderates that and gives meaning to it with words they would have never expected. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you, the new covenant. What in the world is he doing? 
There was this long expectation and anticipation of a new exodus, a new Passover. And now we're seeing the rumblings of that beginning to happen. You know what? Something I found that was interesting would go on sort of, they felt like, in a sacred and spiritual way when they were sitting at the Passover meal is that every year when Jewish people gather for the Passover, what they're doing is they're remembering. But not in the way we think of remembering. It's a kind of mindfulness that's supposed to bring the past into the present. So that when they celebrate the Passover meal, they're not saying we're celebrating what happened all of these years ago, but we're saying those people are us. We are them. We are the people who were delivered from slavery. You can see this language in the Bible. We are the people who God has brought out of bondage. We are the people. We are these people. The past is coming into the present and they are becoming those people of the past in the present being reconstituted as Passover people, as Exodus people in that moment. That's what the Passover is about. Remember. Passover calls them to look backward and it prompts them to look forward to the possibility of a new Passover and a new Exodus. And that's what's happening here at the table. When Jesus invites us to the table, He's inviting us to lean into our identity as new covenant people. As people of the new Exodus, as people of the new Passover, you heard Paul in 1 Corinthians say a moment ago that we should not live as people with this leaven in our lives, but we should live as Passover people unleavened in every way. What did that mean? Well, what it means is that over time the idea of leaven evolved into anything that works its way, any little thing that works its way into our lives from our false worship, from our idols that can sort of distract us and diminish us and destroy us as people of God. And so Paul is saying when you come to the table for worship, remember your people of the new Passover and get the leaven out of your lives. Is there leaven in any of your lives? Are you holding on to unforgiveness? Are you, are you holding on to, to some grudge? Is there anger? Is there something that's eating its way at you? Some pride, some selfishness, some, something that's just, it's in there and it's worked its way in and it's kind of connected to some other God in your life, something that you're pursuing. and it, you, You're just not quite who you need to be in Christ because of that. We come to the table to be reconstituted as people of the new Passover who are ready to see God work the leaven out of our life and God's Spirit into our life. That's part of what we're doing today. As we lean into the meal that Jesus gave us to help us understand the sacrifice that He gave us as well. God, as we come to the table and receive this bread, we pray that you would shine a light, your light, 
on every bit of leaven in our lives. Everything that is corrupting, everything that is distracting, everything that is diminishing our ability to be a reflection of you in this world. A person through whom your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring that to our attention now as we prepare to celebrate your new exodus.